You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 47. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. My goals are to write for an average of at least six hours every week, and to write at least 600 words per day. In this podcast, I tell you how I've been doing at achieving those goals, and I share a piece of my fiction with you. So without further ado, let's get to today's story. Today I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 11 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to the show, stop here. Go back to episode 24 and listen to this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In the last episode, Metamore City detective and illusionist Catherine Catane successfully completed her disguise charm for Misty Holloway. The charm will allow Misty to look like she did before her body was warped and mutated by the power of the Telvari Rift, which theoretically should allow her to resume her life as the scion of House Halloway. But Kate knows that Misty has a problem the disguise charm can't solve. She and her friends have been possessed by some kind of magical symbiont, creatures that lived in the Telvari Rift, and apparently got trapped inside them. Without the rift's enormous power to support them, the symbionts are slowly starving to death, and taking their hosts with them. Of the six people who visited the rift, two have already died, Bernard Travers, the shuttle pilot, and Hal Rains, the son of one of the Metamorian explorers who disappeared at the rift a quarter century ago. Kate told Misty that the Lightbringers want to meet with her and her friends, to talk to the symbionts and try to open peaceful relations with them. In exchange, Commander Janus Starson will provide them with passage back to the Rift. Misty and her symbiont don't trust Janus, but as Kate pointed out, they're running out of options. They're going to have to trust somebody, and soon, or neither one of them is likely to survive. Meanwhile, the vampire crime boss, Malcolm Ardvalos, has taken an interest in the deaths of Reigns and Travers. His people have hired Evan Selindi, a charismatic fixer and social engineer, to obtain copies of the men's autopsy records. Malcolm hopes the records will give him some clues to what the Telvari Rift did to them, and whether its power can be harnessed. Evan has infiltrated the morgue by posing as Thomas Finch, a representative from the Imperial Ministry of Health. But nobody told Evan the identity of the head medical examiner at this particular facility, Dr. Morgan Drowling, the only vampire in the Metamore City Police Department. And now, Morgan has Evan cornered in her lair. Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 11, Continued. She wore a set of light blue scrubs and slippers, 
She had tied the ends of her shirt in a very non-regulation manner, exposing her taut, muscular midriff, and the drawstring pants rode low on her hips like a belly dancer's. Her skin was so pale that she looked like she had been carved from marble. Her long, thick hair fell in a glossy black curtain over one shoulder. She held a unit of blood in one hand, and there was a straw sticking out of it, like a juice box. As Evan watched, she raised the straw to her lips and sucked, her dark eyes glittering with amusement. "'Not to worry, Lenny,' Drowling said, those predator eyes fixed on Evan as she glided into the room. He had an amulet that protected him from a vampire's domination gaze. He wore it whenever he dealt with syndicate business, but he could still feel her will pressing down on him, testing his defenses. The amulet grew warm against his chest as its power resisted hers. I just went to bed hungry. It was the smell that woke me up, not the noise. Leonard coughed again. The smell, ma'am? Evan wasn't wearing cologne, and his antiperspirant was subtle and gender-neutral. Drowling's lips parted in a seductive smile. A healthy man in his sexual prime gives off certain chemical signals. My senses are attuned to such things. A slow grin spread across Evan's face, and it wasn't entirely faked. I suppose I should say thank you for that. Maybe you should, Drowling agreed. Leonard looked back and forth between Drowling and Evan. I, uh, I think I'm going to go get some coffee. Drowling nodded once, waving dismissively. The assistant scurried past her and out the door, shutting it behind him. Shutting Evan in the room with the vampire. Fear and arousal fought for control in Evan's lizard brain. He pushed back both impulses with the discipline of a trained actor and called up everything he could remember about this woman. Morgan Drowling was the scion of a powerful noble house, but a sex scandal of some kind had put her on the outs with her family and made her persona non grata among the ruling elite. She had popped back into the limelight briefly a few years ago, when she was illegally turned against her will. There were rumors that she would be removed from her post on a medical discharge, but then the police department unexpectedly closed ranks around her and stopped talking to the press. Drowling went back to work as if nothing had happened, and, disappointed at the lack of spectacle, the media eventually dropped the story. Evan had been unaware that Drowling worked at this particular morgue, and nothing on the hospital's WorldNet site had mentioned it. Now that he thought about it, and he was thinking very quickly at the moment, he realized that must have been a deliberate move to protect her from harassment. Westerson hadn't mentioned it either, but Evan could probably blame that on the vampire's perverse sense of humor. He made a mental note to return the favor, if and when he could survive doing so. For now, though, Drowling was here with him, awakened prematurely by her instincts, which meant that the beast would be close to the surface. She was horny, or hungry, or both, and she was used to getting what she wanted. Evan could use that. Keeping her eyes on the woman's mouth, rather than meet her gaze directly, Evan put on his most charming smile. Please allow me to introduce myself. He bowed, but did not look away from her. Thomas Finch, Ministry of Health. 
It is an honor to meet you, Dr. Drowling. Properly, he should have addressed her as Lady Drowling, but he guessed with her family history that it wouldn't go over well. Drowling bowed to him in turn, though not as deeply. Thank you, Mr. Finch. What can I help you with? She took another slow, deliberate drink from the blood bag, wrapping her lips sensually around... Evan reined in his thoughts and told his libido to behave itself. Bloody hells, she's a strong one. The amulet seemed to be growing hotter, the enchantment straining to keep up with Drowling's unconscious psychic assault. He would have to be careful, or this situation could spin out of his control, fast. He repeated his request for the autopsy records. Drowling frowned thoughtfully. No one has called in for them yet, she said. Strange. The Ministry is usually careful about that. Who did you say your supervisor was? Dr. Isaiah Chambers, ma'am. Westerson had given him the name to use, in the event that he faced this level of questioning. Evan didn't know the man's affiliation with the Syndicate, but he assumed Chambers was considered reliable. Hmm. Drowling slid over to the desk Leonard had vacated, leaning up against it an arm's length away from Evan. She put her hand on her hip and crossed one ankle over the other. The pose did interesting things to the curves of her body, and the proximity gave Evan a better view of her cleavage. I'm afraid I can't give you the reports right this second, Mr. Finch. I need to check on this with Dr. Chambers and the detective in charge. Evan pulled out his phone and offered it to her. You can call them. I can wait. She chuckled, a rich and throaty sound. (laughs) It's not that simple, pretty boy. She put her hand on his, caressing the skin as she pushed the phone lightly away. The jurisdiction's pretty thorny on this one. Could be trouble if I get caught in the middle of it. Nice deflection, sweetheart, Evan thought. But Drowling wouldn't be putting on the vamp like this if she weren't willing to negotiate. Now they were just haggling over price. Could be trouble if you don't, too. Evan pointed out. He kept his tone light, almost playful. Two bodies dead by unknown means in a matter of days. That's how epidemics get started. What's going to happen if it spreads to the general population? Based on what I've seen, I don't think it will, Drowling said. But we can't know that for certain. Evan slid a little closer to her, then reached out and took her hand. She didn't pull away. Come on, Doc. We both want the same things. Help me out here. Drowling twined her fingers through his. I will, she said, with all apparent sincerity. But I can't just ignore procedures, either. Look, if I can get everything sorted out, I should have the reports ready for you by nightfall. Her lips turned up at one corner. But I'm supposed to be off-duty now, Mr. Finch. You're asking me to spend the day on this after I've already pulled an all-nighter. You want my help? You're going to have to make it worth my while. Evan returned her sly look with one of his own. He lifted her hand to his mouth and placed a little kiss across her knuckles. What did you have in mind? Drowling's lips parted, showing teeth that looked a little sharper than was normal. A date. Evan raised his eyebrows. With Drowling's beast riled up, he'd been expecting a more immediate form of gratification. A date? A date, Drowling said again. 
she extended a finger and pressed it against his bottom lip. You are an exceptionally pretty man, Thomas Finch. I've spent the last week up to my elbows in ugliness, and you would make for a welcome change of pace. Evan grinned. Milady, I would be delighted to help take your mind off your troubles. I know a number of diverting techniques. By way of demonstration, he raised her wrist to his mouth and nibbled gently on the skin just above the veins. It was a ritual gesture for vampires, and one he knew they found intensely erotic. He underestimated its effects. Drowling growled, a hungry sound deep in her throat, and moved. In a flash, she reached up behind him, grabbed his hair at the base of his scalp, hooked her leg behind his, and rode him to the floor. His back hit hard against the tiles, the air coming out of his lungs in a rush. She straddled his chest and tilted his head to face her. Before he could stop himself, his eyes met hers, and the amulet flared so hot that he thought it must be burning the skin. He tried to look away, tried to close his eyes, but the vampire's gaze held him and would not let go. Let's get one thing straight, Drowling said. Her voice came out rough and intense, as if she were holding on to only the thinnest scrap of control. Her eyes flashed yellow-green, and her brow and forehead had begun shifting forward, taking on a hardened, almost reptilian look. I am not a cheap suck. I won't share blood with somebody I don't trust, and I don't trust you. Evan didn't dare speak. A vampire who doesn't want to eat me? On the one hand, that would make the seduction game a lot less dangerous. On the other hand, she looked like she was about five seconds away from losing it completely. He stayed still and tried not to do anything to trigger her instincts. Drowling sat back a little, releasing her grip on his hair. She smoothed out the front of his shirt and began absently picking off stray hairs and specks of dirt. I'm a lady, Thomas. If you want my help, I expect to be treated like one. Here is what you will do. You will pick me up from my apartment at seven. I'd say you should be dressed to impress, but you seem to do that anyway. You will take me to someplace safe, clean, and at least moderately respectable, that has good food and better wine. Can you dance? Evan nodded, speechlessly. Then you will take me somewhere where we can go dancing. When we are done, you will take me back to my apartment. Then, if you have performed everything to my expectations, you will receive what you have asked of me. Her eyes glittered. And maybe something more besides. But not sharing. Is any part of these instructions unclear to you? Evan swallowed. No, ma'am. Good. The vampire lowered herself down again, until her nose was just below his ear. She breathed in deeply, inhaling his scent. She closed her eyes and let the breath out again, slowly. It came out cold against the side of Evan's neck. Now then, she whispered. Fly away, little finch. Fly away home. She released her grip on him and stood, stepped over him, and vanished into her private lair. Evan found himself getting up and walking out of the hospital on autopilot. He was on the sidewalk before his head finally cleared enough to wonder what he should do next. 
he decided to go take an early lunch, and then to begin planning his date with Lady Morgan Drowling. This is insane, he thought. I can't believe I'm actually thinking of doing this. If I had any sense, I'd scrub the mission and tell Westerson to bugger off. But he was thinking of doing this. No, he was going to do this. There wasn't any question about it. And it wasn't just because of the money Westerson was paying him. Drowling had taken all of his charms, all his attempts at manipulation, and matched him play for play. She was smart, and more than that, she was cunning. She would not be an easy mark, and Evan respected that. It had been a long time since he'd met someone who posed a real challenge to him. Except for the telepaths, of course, but that was just cheating. It was going to be a pleasure matching wits against her. But there was something else as well. The more he thought back on his encounter with Drowling, her raw sensuality, her unquestionable authority, the weight of her pressing him to the floor, the more he realized how intensely arousing it had been. Evan Selindi, the face, the fixer, the master of his own destiny, had met his match in the indomitable will of Morgan Drowling. For a brief moment, at least, he had been powerless in her hands. And somewhere deep inside, a part of him hungered for it to happen again. True to her word, Kate stopped by Morgan's office as soon as she arrived at work. The medical examiner was sitting in the lotus position on a thin foam mat, her eyes closed in meditation. Kate hesitated in the doorway, unsure whether to disturb her. After a few seconds, Morgan smiled without opening her eyes. Good morning, Kate. Morning, Kate said, cautiously. Everything all right? Well enough. Morgan rose in one fluid movement, stretching her arms over her head. Just taking some time to recenter myself. Kate sat down on the edge of the desk. Uh-huh, she said, not convinced. So what happened to decenter you? Morgan smiled wickedly. I woke early to some attractive scenery. The Ministry of Health sent a pretty boy to beg me for the autopsy records on Rains and Travers. Uh-oh. What did you tell him? That I had to check with you first. Will it cause any problems if I release the reports? Kate considered it. She hadn't told Morgan about the symbionts, so... What did you learn from Hal's autopsy? Very few answers, my dear, but I have some fascinating new questions. Morgan rolled up her mat and stowed it in the corner of the room, then leaned back against the wall to face her. His body seems to have been running at an extraordinarily high metabolic rate. The cells I looked at had twice the normal levels of mitochondria, and the lysozymes... Stop. Kate held up a hand. Sorry, I can't speak doctor this early in the morning. Translate to cop for me, please. Morgan sighed. His cells were working themselves to exhaustion to produce energy, and he was burning muscle tissue to pay for it. Cells generate waste products when they burn food. Carbon dioxide is the one everyone knows about, but the protein machinery also breaks down and has to be replaced. How cells were choking on their own worn-out equipment, 
and his blood was turning to acid because of the extra CO2. Kate winced. That sounds horrible. Did you see anything like that when you looked at Travers? Travers' body was too far gone to draw many direct comparisons. At a guess, I'd say the wasting in both men was caused by the same process. Something made their bodies radically increase their energy production. But I still have no explanation for what started the fire inside Travers. Wait a minute, Kate said. When a swoop runs too fast for too long, the drive turbines overheat. They can even start a fire inside the housing if you ignore the warning lights. Wouldn't something like that be true for people? Morgan nodded. After a fashion, yes. That's what a fever is, metabolism running faster than the heat can dissipate. But things can only heat up so much before proteins start unfolding and the reactions stop completely. Normal body temperature is 37 degrees. A fever of 41 is enough to kill a human. Her mouth twisted in annoyance. Travers really should have died long before he caught fire, either from the dehydration or from starvation or from the fever. The fact that he didn't is irritating. Kate hid a smile. Maybe his mutations had something to do with it. You said he didn't look completely human. Yes, Morgan agreed. And I suspect Hal was controlling the fever with his cryokinesis, which may have helped him survive a little longer. But my best guess is that there was some sort of trigger event that kicked Travers over from a slow, lingering death to a sudden and explosive one. She let out an irritated sigh. Unfortunately, I have no idea what that might be. We'll keep digging into it on our end and see what we can find out, Kate said. You got the report on Hal ready for me? Morgan crossed to her desk, pulled a folder out of her outbox, and handed it to Kate. As promised. What about the Ministry of Health? Kate tapped her fingers against the folder for a moment. Do you think they'll interfere with the investigation? Unlikely. There's no sign of contagion on the bodies, and we've known for decades that rift exposure doesn't transfer between people. Once they see that it's not in their jurisdiction, they should leave you alone. All right. Go ahead and give it to them. I have enough people mad at me already on this case. She headed for the door, then paused and turned back. Huh. Morgan raised an eyebrow in question. I was just thinking... How did the Ministry of Health find out that the two autopsies were connected? Is there like an imperial database of weird deaths or something? Morgan frowned thoughtfully. Not as such. I mean, if you had reported this might be contagious, I could understand it. Or if the reporters were out there spreading misinformation about the case. But we've been keeping this quiet, and I assume you have too. Of course, Morgan said, nodding sharply. Right. And Count Halloway wouldn't tell anyone. It would expose Misty and hurt one of his big allies in the Senate. So how did Minhealth hear about it? Morgan was silent a long moment. That, she said at last, is a very good question. Might be a good question for your pretty boy, Kate suggested. When are you going to see him? Slowly, Morgan smiled. Tonight, she said. And I think we're going to have an interesting time.
And that's the end of chapter 11. What has Evan gotten himself into? How much has Morgan figured out already? Will the runner get what he wants from her? Or will Morgan play him before he plays her first? The story continues next week. W. Somerset Maugham said, There are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. I guess I'll just keep doing this by trial and error, then. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,605 words this week, over the course of 2.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 947 words per hour. I wrote on three out of seven days this week. Obviously not my best week, but hey, it's more than half of what I wrote in all of March, so it's a step in the right direction at least. I'm continuing to work on the Metamore City Live script. I think it's a little less than half done now. I'm aiming for roughly the same length as the script from two years ago, which was around 8,600 words. I was not able to record Maternal Instinct last week for a variety of reasons, so that's going to be a major priority for this coming week. One reason for the delay is that I've been working on the second paperback edition of Things Unseen, with a revised cover and some corrections to the text. My plan is to have three books ready for Balticon, Urban Legends, Making the Cut, and Things Unseen, all with matching covers. I'll be selling them at a shared table in the dealer's room, so if you're coming to Balticon this year, this is a great chance to get autographed copies of all three books. And now... The feedback. Hi, this is Trisha M. I haven't been commenting lately because I've read things unseen and I don't want to let any spoilers slip. But episode 45 made me remember the little shiver I had when I saw this bit in chapter 10 where it talks about Malcolm Ardvalis sat in his favorite armchair and lingered over his breakfast. She was a pale-skinned blonde woman. <laughs> oh, I mean, I already knew Malcolm was a vampire, so that passage shouldn't have surprised me, but you just led up beautifully to that bit of wicked humor. Thank you, Trish. I do so love writing about Malcolm, particularly when I get to show what a magnificent bastard he is without ever having him stoop to being rude. Mark Stone also commented on this part on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Mark writes... Ah, freaking vampires! The irony of that blood-sucking scumbag getting squicked by parasites was not lost on me. You have inspired in me such a hatred of this man. I really hope he gets a tan someday. Soon. Ah, vampires. You can't buy the sort of glee I felt when I read that. On a more serious note, ever since your fantastic Three Graces story... I'd been meaning to go back to the Metamore City archives and revisit Nobilis Reed's Dreams of Change, which shows a slightly older version of Natalie. So I started listening to it again this week, and it hit me unexpectedly hard. Back in 2012, when I listened to that story the first time, I, of course, felt sympathy for protagonist Ben with his involuntary metamorphoses and meeting intolerance for most people. But with what's going on right now in North Carolina and some other states, 
with reactionary legislatures banning cities from trying to ensure equal protections for LGBTQ people. I was uh, really all the more appalled by the scene when Ben was in female form and his awful RA harassed him in the dormitory bathroom. Not that Ben was exactly transgender, but the sorcerer's effects put him in a similarly risky position. Now, I can hardly imagine feeling unsafe every time I would enter a public restroom, but despite the fantasy setting, that scene helps make it more comprehensible for me. And uh, all that just drives home the power of fiction in the real world, helping to expand perspectives and allow insights, especially when the fictional world building is as rich and well thought out and convincing as it is in Metamore City. I agree completely, Trish. Studies have shown that one of the best things fiction can do is to expand people's points of view, to get them to sympathize with people whom they previously held very prejudiced views about. For the millions of cisgender people who don't personally know anyone who's trans, having fictional role models on shows like Orange is the New Black and Transparent can start them on the road toward understanding and acceptance. And I think science fiction and fantasy are especially helpful on this front, because we can present situations that are analogous to real life without being identical to it. A person who would never seek out a story about, say, a polyamorous family might still come to love the characters of the summer cell in Making the Cut. And a person who sees transgender characters in real-world shows as being preachy could still enjoy hearing about Ben Stansfield or Danny Sharabi. As speculative fiction authors, we have an unusual capacity to reach outside the circle of those who agree with us politically, to meet people where they're at. And sometimes that's the first step toward getting them to think differently about the real world, too. That's certainly what happened to me. Anyway, Chris, I'm glad to hear that your life seems to be stabilizing again, and I hope that April is better for your writing word counts. And I'm really looking forward to your next book. Meanwhile, I'm enjoying your podcast very much. Cheers. Thanks, Trish. Now that we're settling into more of a routine around here, and this apartment is starting to feel like home, I think I should be able to do a lot better on the writing side of things. And thanks for calling in. Hey, Chris. It's Sarah Testarossa. I did want to say that I really enjoyed this week's episode, and I am very excited to see Evan again. He's... Uh, he he's an interesting one. I, I don't even have an adjective right now or even multiple adjectives for how I feel about him. But the idea of him and Morgan meeting is pretty cool because I have a feeling she's going to see through him. We'll see. I mean, Morgan's very smart. I mean, Evan is too, but, well, we'll see. Indeed, we will. One of the things that was really challenging about writing that scene was that both characters are experienced manipulators, each of whom wants more out of the other than a simple business transaction. For all her training, all her intelligence, and all the seriousness with which she takes her job, Morgan is still an impulsive person who enjoys being sexually adventurous. We can see in her conversation with Kate that she takes care of business first— but if she can get business and pleasure from the same person, she's not going to turn it down. Of course, she might feel differently if she knew Evan was working for the syndicate. But the the, the thing that, the way that he was playing the guy, I just it 
frustrates me because I'm like, how many people are going to fall for that? And then I realize, you know what? A lot of people. And that's quite unfortunate. That's true. And it's not that most people are stupid either. Social engineering works because people want to be helpful, because they innately respond to authority, and because of a thousand social pressures and conventions that are generally helpful in oiling the gears of civilization. Social engineers understand where those vulnerabilities are, and they use them to hack into our social network, so to speak. At the contract research organization where I just started working, they have an entire training session about becoming a human firewall practicing habits and behaviors that will stop social engineers and other con artists from gaining access to secure and private information. It's a serious problem, and I'm glad to see big organizations like ours treating it seriously. But yeah, no, I'm really excited about the continuation of the story and the charms and the, the idea of the tail. I'm like, well, if she has the tail attached to her, wouldn't she like be able to feel where it is? I mean, it has sensation, doesn't it? Although I'm kind of guessing she's getting used to having a tail. So I don't know. I also don't know how easy it is to control the tail, but that's something worth considering. That definitely could get in the way of a lot of things unless she were to... I wonder if it, if it would be puttable into pants like slacks. I don't know exactly with the bend usually that would probably hurt, but I don't know. I've never had a tail, so I wouldn't know, but it's just interesting stuff to think about. Uh, poor Misty. But anyway, I'm going to leave it there and um, that's it for now. You take care. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. Misty can feel her tail, but just because you have sensation and motor control over a body part doesn't mean you can tell exactly where it is in space. How many times have you stepped on someone's foot, or turned over in bed and elbowed your partner, or reached for a water glass on your bedside table and either missed it or tipped it over? Our brains don't have perfect situational awareness of our body's placement in space, and the awareness that we do have depends in part on the input from our visual cortex. If a body part is invisible, that's denying the brain's parietal lobe a key piece of information— on top of that, add the fact that Misty's brain isn't used to receiving signals from a tail, so her whole somatosensory cortex is having to adjust to this new set of data inputs. Add it all up, and Misty's probably going to be running her tail into things for quite a while. Thanks for the call. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. And to help me keep making this show and get bonus stories and artwork, make a monthly pledge on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. 
So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.